Welcome to our second season of the series 150. So far in our series, David and Tyson have been unpacking with us this songbook of Israel known as the Psalms. This collection of poetry is filled with metaphors, imagery, and symbolism. It's designed to be read, prayed, and sung throughout a lifetime as we learn what it means to be in dialogue with God. So where have you found yourself with the Psalms? Perhaps you have found them to be a source of comfort, a soft place to land, or maybe conversely, your experience reading the Psalms has been a bit jarring or uneasy. If you were like me, and maybe some of you are, the Psalms has at times felt a little awkward or uncomfortable. This discomfort could be managed by merely dipping into the Psalms, wading gently to, through the praise portions, but avoiding lingering in lament and certainly leaping straight over the unpalatable petitions for revenge. So let's just take a second to admit that some of the Psalms are easier to pray than others. If we are honest, when it comes to the Psalms, we typically stay within the realms of comfort. So how should we approach this collection of songs? This hymn book that was so familiar to Jesus and his followers that they knew it by heart. Jesus himself quoted the Psalms regularly, and it is safe to say that he would have pondered and prayed them from his earliest days. Jesus spoke the language of the Psalms right to the very edges of discomfort. Walter Brueggemann says that the speech of the Psalms is abrasive, revolutionary, dangerous, and that most of the Psalms can only be appropriately prayed by those people who were living at the edge of their lives, sensitive to raw hurts and primitive passions. The Psalms asks us to depart from the closely managed world of public survival, to move out into the open, frightening, but healing world of speech with the Holy One. This book is one of power, poetry, and permission. Permission to be candidly ourselves in God's midst. As I approach the Psalms, it begs a question of me. Will I allow myself to be liberated by them? In other words, will I allow my own discomfort to inform how I interact with the Psalms? So we've been exploring this concept by Walter Brueggemann of being securely oriented and then moving into being painfully disoriented, which eventually makes way for a surprising reorientation. So I'm going to talk a little bit about Psalm 40. I chose this psalm because of its peculiar arrangement. The trajectory of Psalm 40 is to move from praise to prayer, which is not the standard pattern. And I think, I think it might tell us something really important about living a life of faith. So Psalm 40 begins like this. I waited patiently for the Lord. 
He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire, and set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. So the psalmist reports his testimony for all to hear. The deliverance that came out of the expectant longing for God to act and the need to be rescued from a place of separation from him. With sure footing, the psalmist speaks of renewed praise for a relational God who desires and delights in a life formed by him. The voice is praise and the mood is joy. Our poet goes on to speak of righteousness, faithfulness, and mercy, language that oozes the gospel message. Verse 10 and 11 read, I do not hide your righteousness in my heart. I speak of your faithfulness and your saving help. I do not conceal your love and your faithfulness from the great assembly. Do not withhold your mercy from me, Lord. May your love and faithfulness always protect me. So we might now be expecting a grand finale of this praise song. But then there is a shift in our melody. Our speaker is confronted. However, instead of the powerful pursuit of an army or an imposing adversary, here are the words of confession and petition. Verses 12 and 15 say, for troubles without number surround me, my sins have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails within me. Be pleased to save me, Lord. Come quick, Lord, to help me. May all who want to take my life be put to shame and confusion. May all who desire my ruin be turned back in disgrace. May those who say to me, aha, aha, be appalled at their own shame. So he has been betrayed by his own character and felt the sting of abandonment. The psalmist pleads for those who have reveled in his undoing to be shamed and humiliated and for a reestablished societal order that says that those who suffer will find community and belonging. Our psalm concludes, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. So, the psalmist finds himself once again painfully disoriented. At its conclusion, the psalm is wrapped up in petition and longing and hope. But while our sufferer is still suffering, we hear in all of its exposed frailty a hopeful note. I am poor and needy. You are my help. And deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. You see, 
Psalm 40 bears witness to the fact that a life of faith is not an unbroken linear trajectory. In a moment, we can find ourselves slipping from this secure place and into a land of dislocated grief. The Psalms were written by and for people who are living on the edges of their lives. They were not written to address business as usual way of life. There is a reality of chaos and disorder that each of us know in our own lives. And praying the Psalms allows us to address God with a speech that gives visibility and authenticity to a situation in which an old equilibrium is dying. The Psalms make space for a life that is no longer well-balanced, symmetrical, and perfectly placed. So now I'm going to use a word that might elicit some negative notions for some of us. And that word is complaint. What if I told you that complaint is a powerful and necessary part of the disorientation process? Complaint gets a bad reputation. It is often confused with grumbling, a word used in scripture to describe a person's general dissatisfaction. But I think that complaint, it might be a little different. So if we can understand grumbling as a protest turned inward, it helps us understand complaint as a protestation set loose. Grumbling takes us out of conversation, whereas complaint can connect us to conversation. Complaint can be seen as honest anger, grief, and sorrow crying out with the realization that life is not as it should be. Complaint is best understood as an act of defiant hope. In an article last week written by Sam Bush, he shares how several theme parks in Japan have recently reopened after their closure due to COVID. And in order to mitigate any spread of the virus, they have posted signs at the entrance of the roller coasters, and they read like this, please scream inside your heart. The writer points out that perhaps this should be the official model of year 2020. Theme park goers express their dilemma of attempting to ride a roller coaster without screaming. It just can't be done. And even if it could be done, it's no way to ride a roller coaster. But isn't it like we're all on a roller coaster right now, screaming inside our hearts. We don't dare open up our mouths and let it out. Because in the game of comparative suffering, we're forced into silence. So we all know someone who has it worse than us right now. And just turning on the news or hopping on social media tells us that in this battle of who wore quarantine the best, we lose every time. And while we never want to downplay the very real tragedies of this world, we do have a tendency to be okay downplaying our own grief, the loss of a job, the breakdown of a marriage, canceled weddings and graduation ceremonies. 
the empty laps of grandparents and lonely dinner tables missing the lingering of guests into the night. It seems like the world has been canceled and that spills out onto the processing of our own individual losses. You see, hope is in short supply. And as poll after poll su suggests and reports, people are having difficulty looking to the future. Collectively, our hearts are troubled. But when people open up the scriptures, examples are not far off of how God uses burdened hearts for the basis of action and that the spark of complaint ignites it. This is known as lament. Let's look at Nehemiah. So he's a man who cried out about a broken wall, whom upon hearing of the broken wall and burned gates, wept and mourned for days. Or Jeremiah, who delivered for years unwelcome messages and is referred to as the weeping prophet. And Esther, who pleaded at the feet of a king and saved the potential destruction of her people. Now you might be thinking, there is no parallel when it comes to the destruction of a city or the massacre of a people. Maybe there is an allowance for complaint when we're talking about such large-scale issues. How many times have we all heard, complaining doesn't change anything? Or does it? Is there a personal and purposeful invitation into complaint? Let's look at Job. Job was a good man who was stripped of his wealth, his family, and his health. In the beginning stages of his many afflictions, he mourns his plight in silence, but eventually bursts forth with this bitter lament. Job's friends who have come to console him become puzzled with his state of affliction. And they attempt to convince Job that this must all be because he has sinned and to escape further punishment, confession is in order. Well, Job laments and claims his innocence, demanding counsel with God and a resolution. Job complains with despair and the abandonment and the darkness of a full life poured out before him. You see, these laments are not unlike those that we hear in the Psalms, and therefore they are not unlike our own. But in Job's lament, he wants one thing, and that is to talk to God. If only I had someone to hear my case. Here is my signature, let the Almighty answer me. Job appeals to God, and in return, God breaks his silence and fulfills Job's deepest yearning, conversation with the Holy One. Job is rebuked due to his allegations that God does not care for justice. Job has lacked some insight, but interestingly enough, God does not say that he has sinned. Although there is rebuke, this needs to be held in tension because God also says that Job has spoke rightly. Job has spoke rightly? Well, that seems a bit contradictory. But I think what is being said here is that although Job has failed to assess properly what is happening within his immediate circumstances and the reasoning behind his suffering, he has in fact complained and agonized with a sincere heart. 
In a surprising twist, God turns to Job's friends who were defending God and rebukes them. Job had been genuinely groping for the truth, but his friends in their attempts to come to the defense of God have actually spoke falsely about his goodness and redemptive activity in the affairs of mankind. They are the ones who have made the grave error. As with the psalmist and his enemies, Job's friends have been left in the hands of God for him to deal with. With the healing work of God, relationships are restored and Job and his friends to God and also Job to his friends. Like the yearnings of the psalmist, a societal correction has been made in that the sufferer finds belonging in community. So you might be wondering, what does Job, Esther, Jeremiah or Nehemiah, what do they have to do with a book of poetry? Well, like our psalmist, they were also living at the edges of their lives, but not until the full extent of their pain and anguish burst forth in declarations of defiant hope can they experience the reorientation that awaits them. Grief turns up in the most unexpected ways. And when we deny grief, it does two things. It can keep us away from genuine community and it keeps us away from honest conversations with the Father. So unless we are willing to call it by name and give lament its due course, it turns into the grumbles and murmurs that we all find distasteful. It festers beneath the surface, and it appears in the form of snark and low-key rage. It's funny. We will expend so much energy talking ourselves out of our grief and into being okay when the generosity of God gives us a whole language in which to process it through. We are not in business as usual times. Many of us are living at the edges of our lives and the Psalms knows about a life that's dislocated, no cover up necessary. Walter Brueggemann says, the reorientation is always a surprise gift. It always comes to us just when we thought it not possible when we could not see how it could be wrought in the present circumstance. The reorientation is not an achievement coming from us. It is not an automatic next stage ordained in our body, but it is something we receive when we did not expect it at all. Life falls into patterns of wholeness where we did not think it could happen precisely and only because God is at work. As Psalm 40 shows us, a life of faith does not exempt us from suffering. But we know that hope can be found there because Jesus is found amidst suffering. He experienced the death of a friend, abandonment, humiliation, and an unjust execution. 
Jesus didn't scream inside his heart. He shrieked to the heavens in anguish, and it gives us permission to do the same. So as we pray these psalms over this series, this year, and over our lifetime, I hope that we can be acutely aware of our own discomfort with the psalms and see that discomfort as unanswered invitations to speech with the Holy One. May the grace and goodness of God meet you wherever you are. Peace be with you. Amen.